0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. It's been a couple of weeks. We, uh... Our schedules just didn't align, and then I got sick, and uh, I don't know. We just couldn't make it happen. We didn't want to wait this long, but now that we're here, we've got a lot to catch up on, Bruce, and none of it is particularly pleasant.
2: No. Lots of police blotter stuff, more bailer stuff, and, uh, you know, uh, well, we also have some, some fallout from some of the coaching moves, most notably... Steve Sarkeesian's stay at Alabama was not very long. So let's get to our guest. It is Dennis Dodd, who is who is uh, versed in everything, but especially so in the North Carolina academic scandal and all things NCA enforcement. Dennis, how are
1: you? And which of these sordid stories do you want to get into first? <laughs>
3: it's uh, I, I want to spin the 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 wheel of fate. I don't know. I I guess, <laughs> I, guess I guess North Carolina because of. Uh, because it was somewhat new um, and Robert Cunningham chose to speak out on the subject right as they're about to go in the room you know later this year before the committee on infractions
1: alright so let's let's catch people up on that so the, the UNC scandal NCA case has been going on for what seems like forever and it's been very unusual they issued a notice of allegations then they issued a revised notice of allegations that seemingly took out all the meat from the original one and then late last year, suddenly they put out another one that brought a lot of that back. So, And that's when UNC started to get pretty defensive about this. So you interviewed Bubba Cunningham, their AD, and he, I mean, it was, you know, usually the, the best advice you can give somebody who's un, under the gun for this is don't tick off the NCAA. <laughs> Cooperate with them. You know, take your punishment. And he's just doing the exact opposite. How surprised were you? with just kind of the defiance and the tone of that interview?
3: Well, ever since that, their response came out, I think in April or last spring, were 73 pages, and they went deep on the NCAA enforcement process, the jurisdiction of the NCAA and the academic fraud scandal, uh, procedural questions that they raised, it was almost like a game of 21 where, you know, you, you should have just stayed on 17. You know, they were at that point, the only things affected were women's basketball and uh, a women's basketball academic advisor. They chose to poke the bear. And now the bear is apparently poked back. I, I, I ask uh, Cunningham, you know, is this third notice of allegations, which now alleges institutional control and unethical conduct. Do you, do you consider that retaliatory? And he, he did not say no. Um, he kind of talked around it, but he did not say no.
2: Dennis, what did you think of this strategy that it seems like it was more more of a strategy than him just kind of venting and, and almost challenging the NCAA?
3: Yeah, it's, it's definitely confrontational to the point that it's got the NCAA's attention. I got an email late, Monday, I guess Tuesday night, after the story was posted, from an NCA spokesman saying, "Hey, here's our statement." And it really never occurred to me, maybe it should to get it get reaction from them because this was just a guy venting. It's going to be what it's going to be. But if you read the statement and the story, it's pretty boilerplate. But obviously, they wanted to get on record with this thing before they go in the room. You know, we're it, it, the statement basically says, you know, we get each party, a chance to state its case, blah, blah, blah. But this definitely has the NCA's attention. And I would scalp tickets to be in that room uh, when that case is heard. It's going to be very colorful.
1: There's so many subplots to it. And one of them is that Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, is the chairman of the Committee on Infractions. He is the one hearing this case or leading the group that's hearing this case. And I can't imagine he's happy with the 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 direction this is taken. But I want to back up a second. All right. I think most people listening at this point are familiar with the overall scandal, you know, two decades of of fraudulent classes at UNC athletes being steered to them. I want to just read real quick, this passage from your interview with him, Um, revealing what seems to be North Carolina's defense in the case. Cunningham told CBS sports quote, is this academic fraud? Yes, it is by a normal person's standards, but by the NCAA's definition, it is not. That sounds like something Kellyanne Conway would say, right? Is, yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you say those two things in the same
2: sentence?
3: They're going they're going to argue semantics. Uh, in the I guess it's the second notice of allegations in regards to the actual fraud itself. The NCA says that North Carolina quote leveraged its position with uh, the professor uh, Julian Julius Julian Miangoro, and Debbie Crowder to create these classes and, and why I say semantics it's because that then Bubba Cunningham says well we leverage our position every day with the school we we asked the business school to create a class for our student athletes and they did every one of them were student athletes I don't think that's going to go very far with the infractions committee but this is the kind of thing we're talking about I think the other part of that is that I think you guys agree that academic fraud has been kind of a moving target for the NCAA, number one. Number two, they don't want to necessarily take on or define in any given case. And so it's in the story, too, where Bubba Cunningham says about academic fraud, you know, the NCAA shouldn't be allowed to tell a school what classes it can offer. I have I have a grade. It's on my transcript. It counts towards my degree. The NCAA should, as a third-party athletic entity, I think he puts it, should have no no um, jurisdiction in that for better or worse
2: dennis my, my question to you is we've seen and i would argue that with the sandusky penn state stuff that reshaped how we at least as the mm-hmm. sports media think of what a scandal is i mean before that it was the nevin shapiro yahoo uh story at miami that was a the huge deal or the reggie bush stuff with yahoo and, and usc but i think the severity of what happened at Penn State, and then obviously what's gone on with Baylor that cost Art Briles and the AD and the and the president there to lose their jobs. With academic fraud, I feel like it is different than guys getting free food or going to taking to strip mm-hmm. clubs or even people getting cars. I feel like it is something different for the NCAA to kind of wrap its wrap its mitts around. Where do you come down on on where it fits in terms of things the NCAA should chase?
3: Yeah, uh, it, you know whether you believe North Carolina was guilty or not, any allegation like this strikes to the core of what the NCAA is. Um, you know that it, it's a, it's part of the constitution. You know what's the value of a degree? Uh, you can't you know, sports are supposed to be supposed to be uh, an ancillary uh, pursuit towards a degree well, if that degree doesn't mean anything or or it was reached in nefarious ways, then, you know, what are we talking about? So, and I tried to make that point in the story that this strikes to the very core of what the NCAA is. um, And that's why it's so important. It's, it's, it's not buying a free lunch. It's not Reggie Bush taking money from a prospective agent for a house for his family. It's, it's staying eligible, allegedly by taking these classes. And I, I, I love this term. Dan Kane of the Raleigh News and Observer made this point last year in one of his stories. He said, it's not a fake class scandal. There were no classes. The classes didn't exist. Uh, I think that's what, that's the discussion point here. So I, I think it goes way farther than anything that happened at, at, at Penn State, because Penn State was a criminal matter. Uh, we can argue about whether the NCAA should have been in or not. Miami, we know what that was, influenced by a, by an outside booster. And USC, I just talked about that. This strikes the very heart of what the NCA is.
1: I agree, Dennis, and that's why I think any notion, a lot of people think because this is taking so long that they're going to let North Carolina skate. And I, I think it's the exact opposite. They know what's at stake here. Everybody knows this story, and everybody knows how much the NCA talks about the importance of academics. Now, what that's going to look like, I don't think any of us have any idea because it's so far-reaching. Are you really going to, Strip, you know, 10 years. It's 10 years right now that they're. I don't know how they came up with that window, but I think it's. Yeah, I believe I, it's I, 10 years. And I,
3: and I, yeah, I don't know how they came up with that. And I don't know how they came up in the previous notice of allegations where, where the investigation started in the fall of 2005, conveniently. Conveniently. After North, yeah, after where they won that championship in oh five. I can't answer either of those questions. Well, so,
1: I, yeah, I mean, does it mean they're going to vacate 10 years worth of wins? Or are they going to. Uh, you know, how if if like, you know, Bruce alluded to, if, if Reggie Bush taking money from agent was worth two years of bull bands, how is yeah. 10 years worth of fraudulent class? I just don't know how you quantify it, but I do think yeah. all indications are leading now to when if this thing ever resolves itself, it'll result in very heavy sanctions. And then I think your interview, Bubba Cunningham kind of he didn't say it, but it sort of sounds to me like he's saying, don't do it because if you do, we're going to sue you. You know, yeah. Don't yeah. don't dare.
3: I think they've uh, I think they've laid the foundation for a lawsuit if they don't like what comes down. That being said, in my opinion, everything is on the table now. Postseason postseason scholarships, those two national championship flags in '05 and '09. And as we know, the NCAA has never in its history taken down, you know, taken away a championship in men's basketball. But I think that, that's where it hits the nerve at North Carolina. Or are, they, are they going to hit our nut? You know, it, it, The reason we devise – the reason we have most of our identity for a lot of people, college basketball, that's in play. I'm not saying it, it will get taken down. Um, I think North Carolina is a place where you mentioned vacated wins. I think that, that would really be damaging to North Carolina. I think in a lot of cases, just a paper penalty – it doesn't matter. But at a place like Penn State uh, where Joe Paterno, you know, fashioned the all time wins record at North Carolina, the oldest public institution in and considers itself an institution of higher learning. I think that would that would disgrace North Carolina, even though, again, it doesn't mean anything per se. I think it would really, really hurt the North Carolina psyche.
2: Dennis, let's shift gears for a second. There was news this morning on, as we're taping, uh, out of the Big Twelve in regard to Baylor. Uh, basically, they're going to hold revenue from the Big Twelve deal, which could be anywhere between five, I'm told, and seven yeah. million dollars. Now, the, eventually, the Baylor could will get this money back once the third party audits them to see if they, how they're doing with the 105 recommendations from that Pepper Hamilton had put forth. It's, it's kind of a response I'm told from the big 12 in the wake of, of the news dump with all the, uh, all the text messages from the three regions. I mean, is this story going to get worse for Baylor, do you think, or is it finally going to start to kind of, are they going to start to move forward?
3: Well, it's it's going to get worse before it gets better because I, I think there are many, many lawsuits to come uh, or many challenges to that. I, I just looked up since, boy, uh, since December 15th, since Baylor was put on a one-year warning status by their accrediting body. Uh, it said, you better clean up your act or in a year we could put you on double secret probation. Think about what has happened since December 15th. A second former Title IX officer complained to federal officials she was discriminated against and intimidated by Baylor officials. A former football ops guy filed a libel lawsuit, a new lawsuit just last week, 52 rapes in four years by at least 31 players. Miles dropped his libel lawsuit before a series of emails, you know, disgracing him, we know about that. And just this week, the the strength coach got dismissed for allegedly soliciting a prostitute. No, it's not going away anytime soon. It's going to get worse. Um, where it all ends up, I don't know. But it's you know this is this is what non transparency gets you. This is what's this is what hiding behind being a private school gets you and not doing the right thing and stepping up. It's this constant drip drip drip. that don't won't end anytime soon. I'm
1: having trouble keeping track of everything that's happened just in the last two weeks. From the lawsuit that you mentioned, and, and oh by the way, that lawsuit also mentions that uh, or alleges that that coaches were. You know, steering recruiting hostesses to to have sex with the recruits, which is very Louisville esque or Colorado back in the day and would definitely um, uh, get the NCAA's attention. Um, the text messages from Bryles, you know, heart, I think the reaction we all had was, my gosh, knowing this, how could all of those assistants, you know, do the, the truth, truth don't lie and the, and the CAB? I mean, it, it's it's bad. It's Bryles in, in these texts with various people, including assistant coaches, including his A.D. in McCaw. I mean, just blatantly
2: trying to keep these things quiet. Yeah. To me, the most shocking part of this, and maybe I, I don't can't speak on behalf of Liberty. The fact that Ian McCaw got it, that it was hired to run another athletic de- de- uh, department, you know, in the wake of this is kind of mind boggling.
3: It it really is until you look at Jerry Falwell Jr., who's a bit of a wild card himself, and I believe was probably warned against hiring Ian McCaw. I can't can't prove this yet, but I I believe that their hiring of Ian McCaw probably is now keeping Liberty from, from going FBS. I think Jerry Falwell Jr. was making a concerted effort for Liberty to move up. Can you imagine... The NCAA granting status to Liberty with Ian McCaw as their athletic director. I can't.
2: It's a good point. I mean, Ian
1: McCaw is, is in one of those texts. Uh, says, you know, oh, hopefully they keep it quiet. That'd be great if they keep it quiet. Ken Starr was even implicated in one of those where um, somebody says, you know, they're trying to they're trying to uh, get somebody's uh, suspension overturned academically. And uh, like, Te-
3: Tevin Elliott, uh, I yeah. think, or was, that the, was that plagiarism? Yeah, they Elliott's said, uh, you word? know,
1: oh, they, you know, he's got uh, a hearing with somebody right below Star, But if that doesn't go well, you know, the president will overturn it. He'll take care of it. Um, I want to ask you when all this, you know, when the scandal really broke last May, now and Riles was fired and the Pepper mm-hmm. Hamilton report came out. People I talked to, I'm sure you did as well, were, were saying, well, the NSA is not going to get involved because they don't want to go down that road again that they did with Penn state where they tried to get involved in something that's mostly criminal and ended up getting sued and having to repeal half of it. So they're probably not going to go down that road, but ESPN reported last week, they are in fact investigating and seemingly focused more on the extra benefit aspect of it. I mean, do you now expect there to be a traditional, like we're talking about with UNC NCA enforcement case against Baylor?
3: Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I thought it was a bit of grandstanding, the part you you mentioned at first, where they, the NCA last year made a point to say so we're not going in on this case like we did Penn State. Well, no kidding, guys. Um, I well, just to be clear, though,
2: you. that came from Baylor, right? But I I think, Stu, I right, think right. That, that going back to you know whatever it is, six months, I right. think I, I don't think this is that new. I think that it had been out that they that the NCA was look going to look into this. The school put out a
1: statement sometime middle of last year saying they'd been in contact with the NCA and the NCA reassured them that this is not something they were going to get involved with. And obviously that changed at some point.
3: Look, I think there is a way in through the traditional route the traditional enforcement route. I was told a while ago that by someone who would know that nothing was going to happen in that vein, Baylor, unless Baylor's lawyers or, or self-examination found something, what, what ESPN is now reporting that the, uh, the enforcement staff is being proactive and going in there and, and looking for violations. And, you know, I, I thought early on you could easily make an extra benefits case if, well, if any of those players who were well, just accused, let's say accused, saw the field in practice or played in the game without going through the traditional student uh, disciplinary route. Uh, that alone could be an extra bit,
2: right? Then you're, you're talking about yeah. playing ineligible players, which is why I yeah. what I think will happen, and this is what I my what I've heard might is on the be on the table is vacated wins and potentially mm-hmm. vacated championships.
3: Yeah. So I. I so I, I, it, what that answers to me is yes, John Duncan and the enforcement staff have the stomach to go back in there.
1: You talked um, about with UNC, how much it would hurt them to lose those national championship banners. I mean, this was, you know, the greatest period in Baylor football history, the back-to-back Big 12 championships. Obviously very tainted now, completely tainted by what happened off the field. And I just think, you know, if it was capped off by an extra benefits case that resulted in them vacating those two Big 12 championships, Yeah. you know, it's like...
3: Do they ever get back, you know, to that point? Because there, there's a 35,000-foot view hear of this, and I, I wrote about it last year. That you know, if, if you were forming a conference today, what Power Five conference would want Baylor? Okay, I think we know the answer to that. I don't think that answer changes in 2025 when the Big 12 contract expires. I, even though that's wow, eight years away, I, I think the Baylor brand is damaged now to the point where there's some of the reorganization of you know the top level of college football. I think Baylor gets left out. As you know, the only reason they got into the Big Twelve is because of Ann Richardson and politics back in nineteen ninety six. Uh, I think they sealed their fate, frankly, as a as a power five school going forward.
1: Even with, you think that even with, you know, both men's and women's basketball are nationally national powers yeah. in the top five right now.
3: Well, look, they can look. You can you can be a national power in basketball. And still be Tulsa and football, you know, right. and, and be at that level. I'm I'm talking, you know, all the benefits that being in the Power Five entails. Well, uh, you know, go ahead, branding, well, bowl money, whatever.
1: Yeah, and to your point, it's clear. It was clear even before uh, Wednesday's announcement about the the withholding the revenue. The Big Twelve has basically had it with Baylor. In that ESPN yeah. story uh, last, I think it was last Friday. Um, about the ongoing NCAA investigation, they talked to Bob Bowlesby. Can you imagine a commissioner of any other conference saying some of these things about one of their schools? And it was almost like he was building the case against them. Uh, I'm going to read you a couple of the quotes. Um, (laughs) Bowlesby told ESPN on Friday that the NCAA could be looking into some of the issues raised on the text messages as they pertain to extra benefits. I doubt very much that most students have anybody available to steer them to legal counsel, said Bowlesby. Okay? All right, there's your one infraction. I, I Ballsby noted that he would need to know specific circumstances referring a student-athlete to a lawyer might not qualify as an extra benefit, but transporting him to an attorney's office and negotiating a payment might. And then he also brought up the, um, asked whether helping a student circumvent the school's code of conduct also could be considered an extra benefit. Ballsby added, yeah, I think that would likely constitute an extra benefit as well. Anything that a student-athlete receives that other students wouldn't be privy to, there could certainly be a case made to consider an extra benefit. Like the commissioner of the Big 12 is basically saying, "Yep, I think I think they deserve to be punished. They committed some NCAA violations."
3: Yeah, not only is he upset, I think what he's he's talking about or or speaking for are the nine other presidents in the league. I mean, I've known since last summer how upset Bob Bowlsby was, and by an extension, the rest of the league. As as I, as I mentioned, the slow drip of this came out, and there's, there's you know, more to this, I believe, in an NCAA punishment vein than meets the eye. I think they're going to find a lot based on what I've been told when they go in there. Not if now, I guess. I guess when they go in there. So that I, To the point that I think they'll easily be able to make a case. So, yeah. And, but look, Bob Volsby speaks his mind anyway. And there's, there's, no, there's no reason hiding and obfuscating because that's all Baylor has done. Somebody has to tell the truth.
2: Hmm. Dennis, on that high note, uh, I want to take you to another (laughs) scandal that has emerged to the degree uh, we don't know yet. But Sports Illustrated, Stu's old place of work, uh, had an interesting story out of Colorado involving uh, the former interim defensive coordinator, Joe Tumpkin, who had been elevated to that spot when Jim Levitt had left. And Mike McIntyre, the head coach there, who had had a great season on the field and was pretty much consensus national coach of the year. But this story does not reflect well on McIntyre or certainly his bosses at CU. Um, In the climate we're in now, how much traction do you think this story gets and and where does it go from here?
3: I I think it gets more traction. It's only because of the current climate that you mentioned which obviously should be in, in place all the time. But look at look at Colorado's history. I mean, this is the place where Gary Barnett disparaged a woman in 2003. Hasn't worked since. Before that, wide-ranging recruiting scandal that involved uh, sex with recruits that that led, by the way, to Miles Brand calling an emergency. Um, Emergency meeting to get the the uh, recruiting rules changed. That, along with uh, I think was it Willie Williams at Miami, Bruce, mm-hmm. um, where he was getting the, the steaks and lobster and everything. So the optics here aren't good. Combined with the history at Colorado, it, it's not good. And you know, you just uh, my my uh, my colleague John Solomon was talking about you know doing a story about you know, this is never gonna end. It's it is what it is. And I counted I think you're right, but I would almost argue the opposite right now that with people like Brenda Tracy and the awareness that it has to get better. I'm not so sure now. Just blatant disregard for a woman like this.
2: So for people who may not have read this story, uh, a girl a girlfriend of of Joe Telmkin, that is the former CU defensive staffer, uh, had alleged she had been uh, this the victim of domestic violence. She had contacted McIntyre's wife and then spoke to McIntyre. And then subsequently on December 20th, uh, which is over a week before their bowl game, uh, she was granted a temporary restraining order against him by a judge in, in Boulder. And so the upshot of this, after the story came out, Colorado said that the school chancellor as well as the AD, Rick George, had approved the decision to allow Tumpkin to call plays for the bowl game, even though they had knowledge of domestic violence allegations against Tumpkin, I mean, knowing that, yeah, to me that is really disturbing. I now, I think I'm not saying that entirely takes the responsibility off of McIntyre. When you are talking about the chancellor and the AD, I think they're going to have a lot of stuff. They're going to have a lot to answer for on this issue.
3: And on January 31st, he was charged with five felony counts of second-degree assault and three misdemeanor counts of third-degree assault. Now that's obviously way after the fact, but this is of him coaching. But this is what we're talking about, allegedly at the time that he he had done to this woman. And I, I you know, I, I know all of this is is heinous and wrong. When you even you just get wind of this, how is it so important that? Joe Tumpkin has to call plays in a darn bowl game. you know, that it's, that it's that important. Uh, the moment you hear that, you just got to, okay, you're just, you're just going to be suspended or go away for a while because this is not right.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important to note, and I would encourage people to read that story by Michael McKnight on yeah. SI. I mean, it's very disturbing and it's very courageous of, of the woman who, you know, mm-hmm. in the article goes into great detail about, um, what she's alleging he did to her. It was awful. And, um, and because it's a told from that point of view, McIntyre comes off as unsympathetic because she called and confided all this stuff into him. To him, and then he basically shortly thereafter cuts off communication with her. As insensitive as that seems, I actually kind of understand it. I'm sure he realized the severity of it that there was going to be. I'm sure he's thinking, um, I could be deposed. I could be. Um, you know, there's going to be proceedings here. It's best if I don't contact her. I get that. But like you guys have said, even having heard that from her and, and knowing that um, she, she was in the course of probably going to get a restraining order, he, he still promoted him to D.C. for the game. And uh, yeah. now what comes of that? Bruce and I disagree on this a little bit. I don't think much will come of it. It's a, you know, a poor decision on his part. And it certainly takes the shine off of the feel-good story around him in Colorado last year.
2: I just don't know how much further it gets. Bruce, on the other hand, thinks. You know, I think in the climate we're in, I mean, we just saw, and I don't want to say this is, you know, what happened at Baylor because I think all these situations are are unique to themselves and the circumstance. The part that I I think is going to be tough for CU to answer is the, not just that you let him coach, but that you elevated him with this knowledge. I mean, I don't, I wonder if Rick George will lose his job in the wake of this. Yeah. I mean, because he's I the forget, one who signed off yeah. on
3: this. Let's not forget, this is a school that, that hired Jim Levitt, um, who allegedly laid hands on a player at USF. I, I, I'm not saying that Jim Levitt should never work again. You know, he'd been part of a Super Bowl team in San Francisco under uh, Jim Harbaugh. But look, again, given, given CU's history, I don't know if it should be Colorado. And uh, I I don't know if Mike McIntyre was, I've been led to believe he wasn't even the guy who wanted him as defensive coordinator. I don't know that for sure. It may have been a higher up who who put that on him, but you know, that that's another situation where I wrote about it when he got, when he got hired, Jim Levitt, no one else really cared and they went on and became a top 10 team. And now this,
2: what do you think would be apt at this point
3: in in terms of punishment?
2: Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that, that Rick George, uh, or the chancellor should be fired or McIntyre. I don't, I just do not know what the appropriate response to something where you clearly did not, you know, in hindsight handle this appropriately. And I don't know what the, what the, reaction to that should be but these are big positions yeah, I, of leadership and people are watching
3: i agree there there has to be some overt i think uh move to show contrition and, and probably punishment i don't know exactly what that could be right now uh or what it, what you know what's what's a meaningful penalty and reaction to this to the people involved you know i i, I don't know if there is one short of uh short of dismissal. And I don't think anybody, Bruce, you think that might be, might be on the table, but.
2: um, I don't know. I I honestly don't know know the answer to this. I just know that what, and again, we haven't heard from, from McIntyre on this yet. Uh, And I'm sure that some of this is just, it's almost like paralysis by analysis of of what is the appropriate response. All these situations are unique to themselves, but I do think, and this is something from talking to some other coaches Some of these coaches still don't get it. I really don't think that, you know, they use the expression, I've heard this for uh, over a decade, you know, a player gets in trouble at another program and the coaches will say these are teachable moments. Well, a coach gets in trouble someplace else and it doesn't seem like the other coaches kind of understand where they fit with these things and their responsibilities for
3: it. Yeah, I think it's going to be a process. I mean, just in the, you guys know the Oregon strength coach situation before, I mean, we can talk about how, you know, he should have been accredited, which he wasn't by any of the two major bodies. He was accredited by a track and field organization. The other part of this, I think a big part of it is why doesn't, why why aren't strength coach positions posted like any other position in the athletic department? It's custom for a new coach to bring his guy without, basically without vetting um, in. And yes, Probably 99% of the guys know what they're doing, but we keep having these players in the hospital, uh, l- even less than that, given punitive drills. I thought we were past the stance getting up at five in the morning or, or doing uh, punishment reps or punishment runs when in this day and age, it should be all about uh, strength enhancement and skill development. I'm sorry. Um, there's other ways to penalize these guys without abusing their bodies. They get enough of that in games. So I just I went off on a the tangent there, but I wanted to put that in.
1: And and Bruce, to your point about the the teachable moments, I mean I think the the Baylor and the text messages is a perfect example of that. Now I don't know, you know, all these assistants that kind of blindly defended Art Briles and and clearly thought that this was some sort of uh yeah, they they literally thought that like the school was trying to run him off like the school would actively want to run off the the most successful coach in school history uh, to protect themselves anyway i don't know like that they would have been privy to all of those exact text messages but clearly that was a good sampling of kind of what went on there on a regular basis these guys had convinced themselves that that was normal like a guy gets in trouble of course you you, you know let the coach know and, and, oh, hopefully the girl's not going to tell the police. And like, they have convinced themselves that that's just, that's just part of coaching college football, I guess. And uh, that to me is extremely troubling.
3: Isn't that basically what happened with Mike McQuery and, and Penn state and Joe Paterno in it, in a different case, it, but it was that culture. I, I told my coach, you know, um, and, and you go from there, uh, I do say I wanted to raise another point on, on Baylor. Remember the outcry about the Pepper Hamilton report, and there need to be transparency. We need to see a written report. There's, I think Baylor played a lot of people. I think what happened with the release of the Art Briles emails last week, you know, obviously the day before he dropped his libel lawsuit. I think we know why now. I, I think Baylor controlled the narrative to the point that they held those emails as a legal trump card. There's a written report. None of that was in the Pepper-Hamilton report, but somebody knew they existed and put them out there at just the right time. How about that? And how much more of that exists, whether, whether written or not? Those emails were written somewhere. Somebody had them.
2: Right. So, uh, y- nobody's yeah, raised
3: that point to like – yeah, go ahead.
2: S- S- Stu and I talked about this a little bit when the f- story first – I think the first thing we had seen individually was it came out of a Houston Chronicle story. And then there was more coming. I want to say TMZ had something and then ESPN had something. But you wondered – and I don't want to call these juicy or not juicy, but one of them was like a minor in possession and that there's a lot Mm -hmm. more damning stuff out there, which some of these cases it sounds like there you figure there probably is. And is that the next thing that may surface at some point?
1: Especially given the lawsuits that are out there, you know, being filed and the discovery that's going to take place, this could conceivably drag on for years. Like more yeah. and more of these embarrassing headlines for
2: Baylor.
3: I, I think they rather clumsily, back in May, figured out their their immediate liability, and that was to cut Art Briles loose. That the composition of the of the Regents then was such that they decided that okay. We knew we were going to have to pay him, whatever it was. I heard the number was twenty-six million dollars. Okay, but if we name anyone on the on the on the staff by name, uh, sooner or later there's going to be a lawsuit for wrongful termination because in that, you know, you you said stuff about a group but not a person, and if there's a there's a lawsuit, there's going to be depositions. Something's going to become public, read into the court record, and they couldn't afford that. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying it was wrong, actually. And now they're going to pay for it for their lack of transparency by all this little stuff. As I said, again, the drip, drip, drip of information.
1: Well, this was uplifting.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Let's kick it off for yeah, 2017. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, unfortunately, you know, I remember there was an off season, what, five years ago or so, where... You know, the Jim Trestle thing, which, again, is a perfect example of something yeah. that's that we made such a big deal out of the time that seems so minor now. But it was one NCAA scandal after another, and uh, unfortunately, that's what's in the news right now. Um, I'm sure we'll have you back on at some point this offseason to talk about Jalen Hurts or, or uh, <laughs> Baker Mayfield yeah, well, coming back, so, something like yeah. that. But <laughs> this, we hadn't had a chance to address any of these stories, and I'm glad that we did. I think they're all important and uh, you know worthy of discussion.
3: I agree. I would love to talk football at some point.
1: Okay, Bruce, let's make a promise to bring Dennis, <laughs> okay, Dennis, Dennis back. You will not be football. our dirty guy who brings on to drudge <laughs> them right. through the... You are not our Michael Glazer of uh, <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> I'm the
3: the cleaner, huh? The I'm cleaner, the, I'm yeah. The cleaner. <laughs>
2: But we know you have, we know you have them on speed dial, Dennis, if speed dial still exists.
3: That's right. That's right.
2: Check out Dennis's work at
1: cbssports.com. And uh, we thank you for coming on today.
3: Thanks so much, guys. It was an honor.
1: We will get back to the podcast in just a minute. But first, we want to tell you about some great sponsors, the first of which is Blue Apron. And Bruce, when you were away on signing day, I told the listeners all about my Blue Apron experience.
2: So now it's your turn. Yes. So I got back from being on the road and found a big box of food and it was like Christmas morning unpacking this, but um, you know, it's going to be fresh and it tasted good. I was very happy with the beef tortas and um, just the idea of your are stocking your fridge and you're, you're getting something that's pretty easy to prepare.
1: And it's, it's really affordable, you know, for less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home cooked meals. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. And Blue Apron's freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. So, check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free, including free shipping, by going to blueapron.com audible. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's
2: blueapron.com slash audible. All right, Stu, you know what's coming up soon? My birthday. Well, something even more romantic than that, Stu. <laughs> Yes, my birthday is the 15th. Tell us about the 14th. Yeah, that is Valentine's Day. Now, Stu, I remember hearing stories back when you were at SI when you would give the woman you were involved with maybe a high-priced automobile or a fur coat. <laughs> but for our listeners who are not macked out like you, Stu, I have something that's probably a little more reasonable, and that is Books flowers. They are cut fresh and sourced from sustainable, eco-friendly farms, and books are of better value. Your flowers last longer, so your money goes longer, and they have farms located on volcanoes in Ecuador amongst the hills of Colombia and along our beloved California coast. Books make it easy on you with simple ordering, no gimmicks, and transparent pricing, which means no hidden fees. How about that, Stu? Indeed,
1: and as I've said before, I mean, I love books. I cause trouble so frequently that I end up having to buy flowers. So, you know, it works out well, but obviously it's gonna be really convenient with Valentine's Day coming up. Um, I wanna tell you about a couple things that they do to make it more convenient. They have the Never Forget subscription with regular reminders and deliveries on special dates like birthday, anniversary. they also have a Just Because subscription, which is randomized surprise bouquets sent to someone a certain number of times a year on a random basis. That's the one I could use. You're such a sweet guy for sending flowers for no reason at all. And the happiness guarantee, they stand behind their product and experience.
2: So, Stu, you or our listeners can save 20% when you order early for Valentine's Day which is soon. You better order now because it's less than a week away. You get free delivery on weekdays when you register at Books.com. That is B-O-U-Q-S dot com. Use code Romeo. Wasn't that your nickname back in the day? I think it was. Anyway, for 20% off on your order, that's Books.com, B-O-U-Q-S dot com. Code Romeo. All right, so Stu, I know one of the things that you and I don't always like doing, and I dread it, especially in off-season when I don't feel like I have to do TV much, and that is shaving. But for decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expenses of the customers and guys like me and you. Those days are gone. Harry's knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they brought their own factory By taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers their blades at a half price, just $2 a blade compared to the $4 or more you pay at the drugstore. Harry's razors includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave, weighted ergonomic handle, can't beat that, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, And a travel blade cover so you don't hack yourself up when you get to the hotel and sort through your bag. Uh, What are you loving about Harry Stu? I'm going to answer for you. I know it's that smell. You love that fresh, clean, I-just-shave-myself feeling when you uh, take on the world the next day. Absolutely. No question about it. So here's a special offer for fans of our show. Go to harrys.com right now and enter promo code Audible at checkout to get a post-shave balm free that's harrys.com code audible. All
1: right, Bruce, it's been too long. Let's get to some emails.
2: It's the mailbag
0: from a computer. So, not literally a bag, but just mail.
2: You know what? I think we should, in addition to our favorite producer, Lindsay, who's, who's a big upgrade from Teddy, whatever his name was. Forgot about uh, that guy. Yeah, I think we should actually give some kind of like co-producer credit to Jason Gorlewski because he's involved in almost every podcast. Well, he
1: sends emails every single week. You couldn't ask for a more timely email than this to start this segment off.
2: Yeah, so Jason is based in Columbia, South Carolina, which is like the home away from home for us because he's that big of a presence on our podcast. Thank you, Jason. Bruce and Stewart, quick question. How does the loss of Steve Sarkeesian as OC affect the Alabama juggernaut or does it? There's no way Saban brought him in to coordinate just one game, right? Uh, I think Jason's right. I think Nick Saban was surprised.
1: Oh, no question he was surprised. And I also think this is, this is going to be an interesting moment for Nick Saban because times have changed. This is not five years ago when he could just hire anybody who, you know, uh, Doug Nussmeier, McElaine, somebody who runs a pro-style offense and will run the ball a lot and, and you know, make things easier for his defense. You know, with Kiffin, it was it was a big change, and it was an acknowledgement that you're going to run into games like the national championship game, where you just can't stop the other quarterback, and you need to um, you need to score some points yourself. So he had really developed a good system with Lane. Sark was the natural guy to continue it, and now that's not an option. uh, What do you do here? You know what what do you do that can you know who do you go get that will allow you to continue to run that kind of offense? Who you can trust? who you don't have to micromanage,
2: and knock on wood, will be there for longer than a game or a season. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see which direction he goes. I mean, I had reported this on Monday. I mean, some of the names I've told that they will get consideration, the first name is Chip Kelly. That's a big name.
1: Yeah, I mean, I noticed that literally everybody, every one of our friends and colleagues, Pat Forty, Andy Staples, my friend Ben Glicksman at the Ringer, all had their please make this happen, Chip Kelly to Alabama column. And I agree about how fascinating that would be. I don't agree with how practical that would be. I mean, Chip's got a very distinct style of offense. I don't think you hire him to run somebody else's offense. And the the ego, the size of those two egos. I mean, can you imagine Saban chewing out Chip Kelly, two-time NFL head coach, wildly successful college head coach on the sidelines like he did Lane?
2: Yeah, that part would to me seem like a little bit of a head scratcher just because remember, even before Chip Kelly was the head coach at Oregon, he worked for Mike Bellotti, who is not one of these like sideline rage guys at all. He's pretty low key. So to think that, you know, how that would be handled would be interesting. Also, you know, you're only renting him for the most for about 10 months because he, he's not going to stay as an OC at Alabama. You know, if he wants to be a college head coach again, he's going to be the hottest commodity out there so and and you know what whether he wins a national title or helps alabama win a national title or not he's gonna still be a hot commodity this is not nick this is not lane kiffin or steve sarkeesian who needed you know their image polished to get another job the question for me would be and by the way just some of the parts here why i think there is some consideration for it uh Alabama's personnel guy, Ed Manowitz, that was the guy who worked for Chip Kelly in the NFL with the Eagles. So that doesn't mean he's going to take the job or anything. But I'm like, Chip Kelly's not going to sit there and go golf every day. He's not Steve Spurrier. I think that he's going to want to do something to be around football. The question is, would he want to jump into it there for a short time to work for for Saban?
1: Well, you also brought up the possibility of Mark Helfrich, which seems to me uh, kind of an ideal way to incorporate some of the things everybody likes about Chip's offense without some of the other things we talked about. I mean, I'm sure Mark Halfridge wants to be head coach again, but I don't think he's, you know, I I don't think it's something where he's going to run. First of all, he's not going to be in demand. He got fired by Oregon. I don't think he's going to run off at the first. I mean, he could be there for a few years.
2: Yeah, he could be. And the way his situation is set up, you know, it's not a money issue deal at all. It's just, would he want to uproot his family and go to Tuscaloosa and be in that high pressure environment? And I don't know the answer to that. I thought the most likely candidate for Sabin to hire is George Godsey, former Georgia Tech player. He's a Belichick guy. He most recently was with the Houston Texans. He's very close to Brent Key, the offensive line coach. I could see him going there.
1: All right. Chris Pugh. Hey, Bruce and Stu. Love the show. Why don't you guys to give me a grade for Curry Spart's first year at Georgia? Also, do you think there's a reason for Georgia fans to worry about a possible Will Muschamp 2.0? And one more thing, Bruce, please write another book, for exclamation points.
2: Thank you, Chris. I am very appreciative of that. I may write another book soon. We'll see. Um, good question on this. Given that Georgia had to replace its, almost its entire front seven and had it broken a new quarterback, and they weren't really good on the O-line to begin with, I would give Kirby Smart a B minus.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say.
2: Really? Okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a very rocky first year, to say the least, but some of that to be expected.
2: He's a first time head coach in the SEC. It's a big deal. And also, I think he landed a top five recruiting class. That's, you know, you expect him to recruit well at Georgia, but I don't, you don't expect to have the second best recruiting class in the conference.
1: Obviously, there is concern about Moss Champ 2.0 because of the similar background, mm-hmm. but i just don't know how you would even tell that yet it's been one year like you said great recruiting class now let's see if that pays off i will say that and i believe we answered this on an earlier podcast about the hype george is already receiving for next season he has a loaded team coming back like who would have thought both chubb and michelle would come back and Easton will be a sophomore with some experience under his belt now most of the defense comes back obviously sec east is pretty weak so I think you'll get your answer here pretty soon. I would expect a big season. I think if you get another season like this one, then you got cause for concern.
2: Agreed. Agreed. I mean, I think that you got to give him time. I mean, in retrospect, do you think Will Muschamp had enough time? Yeah, I
1: do, because, remember, his second season was great. It was uh, 11 wins, it was Sugar Bowl, but there was a little bit of Smoke and Mirrors feel to it. By the way, who was the defensive coordinator that year for Florida? Uh... He's been in the news lately.
2: Jesus. Um, I thought you would get that in a second. I thought I would too. I'm struggling because I remember, you know, him hiring Charlie Weiss, and I remember all these guys. De- defensive but... coordinator. I know. I'm struggling on the defensive side. That would side. be the coach that almost won the Super Bowl, Dan Quinn. Oh, you're right. You know what? I should have known that when I was at CBS. It's funny. One of my my first interaction with Dan Quinn was we were doing an interview with him on camera, and one of the guys saw Dan could come up and they're like, is that the strength coach? And they like, no, that's the guy we're going to be interviewing soon. It's pretty remarkable
1: path. I mean, 2012, which was not that long ago, he is a defensive coordinator under Champ at Florida. He goes to the Seahawks for two seasons, which were two fantastic seasons for Pete Carroll, and he's an NFL head coach. And in his, what, second year as an NFL head coach, he's in the Super Bowl. Uh, it did not go well, <laughs> Though you'll notice most of the blame was being pinned on his offensive coordinator, not him, um, but still a pretty remarkable rise. Hey, I know you love answering questions about Rutgers. Uh-huh, okay. Charles Bristow. Hi, guys. I enjoy the show. You've been understandably down on Rutgers this past year, but what about their future? There's a common perception that if Rutgers could keep a significant portion of the top New Jersey talent, they would be a contender. Do you agree with that perception? And if so, what do you think their ceiling is perennial contender for the big 10 championship or usually third to fourth in their division with an occasional breakout year and do you think chris ash is the guy to get them there
2: there's a lot to unpack there um i think expecting to be third or fourth in in that division is wildly optimistic you know well you you mean you don't think they can even do that once in a while i think it's a stretch look on a bad year, urban Meyer's going probably ten and three on a bad year, Jim Harbaugh's going you know nine and four, ten and three. I think the way you know the way James Franklin's recruiting now and what they are, I think on a bad year, you know Penn state's going to be eight and five you know i I don't think this was a bad year for Michigan state, but I mean, Maryland, by the way, recruited very well. And there's a lot of talent in Maryland. I mean, I was you know, working on something recruiting related. And in 2018, the state of Maryland seems to be pretty loaded. So I'm not that optimistic. I I think it's going to be a struggle to get more than eight wins any
1: year. I am also pessimistic, not quite as pessimistic as you because any team can get a solid nucleus together and and have a a decent season every so often. But when you think back to when Greg Schiano had it going um, basically a decade ago, they were in a weaker conference, but also— Much weaker. And, much weaker, but also his thing was keeping the kids in state. Well, who were their main competitors? Penn State was going through you know, the end of the Joe Paterno era where they were not the recruiting power they once were. Michigan was in a bit of a state of flux as they went from the Lloyd Carr era to Rich Rod uh, to eventually Brady Hoke. Now Harbaugh's basically set up shop in New Jersey and is picking whoever he wants. So, and and like you said, Maryland obviously competes in a lot of that region as well. So, I don't think he's going to be. I don't think it's realistic unless Harbaugh, Meyer, and Franklin all leave in the next couple of years that he's going to suddenly become uh, that Rutgers is suddenly going to become the destination for all the in-state great in-state recruits. Uh, if anything, you know, the Big Ten is gaining more from from being setting up shop in New Jersey than Rutgers is from being in the Big Ten to this point.
2: Yeah, and I think the challenge is going to be everybody goes in there. So I'm going to read to you the top five recruits. This is by ESPN's new rankings for New Jersey. You want to guess uh, where they went? Who got the number one player in the state of New Jersey this year?
1: I don't know who the number one player in the state of New Jersey was, but I guess he went to Michigan.
2: No. Right conference, right first letter. He went to Maryland. Wow. The number two player went to Stanford. The number three player is Tommy DeVito. That's the quarterback. Uh, He went to Syracuse. Number four player went to Penn State. The number five player is from Paramus Catholic, which has helped uh, Michigan a lot. He went to Michigan. So people
1: often group Maryland and Rutgers together because they came in at the same time. But it seems like they're not remotely in the same position. Maryland just recruited a
2: top 20 class. Uh, Of of ESPN's top— Top uh, 15 in-state recruits. Rutgers got two of them.
1: And I don't even know where Rutgers, let's see, where was Rutgers ranked as a recruiting class? I think
2: they actually had a halfway decent class now. 40, I remember They were 42nd.
1: Which is um, not
2: bad. It between
1: Iowa bad. and Washington State. No, it's not bad. And certainly plenty of teams, Michigan State comes to mind, have put together successful programs with recruiting classes ranked around there. And, and that's probably what he's going to have to do is is find the under-recruited guys who the, the bigger schools miss out on.
2: But you're not—I mean, the idea that you're going to go in and lock down the state, it's, it's not realistic. I mean, you know, look, there's going to be some kids there that are going to end up at Notre Dame, they're going to end up at Miami, they're going to end up at Pitt or wherever. These other schools are going to come in. And I think it's a hard job to expect for people to look at you differently— Unless you're, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing. But unless you get one of those nine or ten win seasons, it's a tough sell. I mean, this is a a really tough job now for Chris Ash, I think. right. Next question. It is from Rocky Al Mutawa. Bruce and Stu, I love the podcast. I listen to each one. You two and whichever guests you bring in are always phenomenal. Thank you very much. I'm a listener in Doha, Qatar.
1: Wow. God. (laughs) Really? What? (laughs) You you don't know how to pronounce that country? No, it's Qatar. It's not Qatar. Well, I'm looking it up now. This is now a long way of saying that it's pronounced Qatar is probably more in vogue now. It's replacing the older way, which I thought it was, Qatar. So I'm right, you're wrong. Um, I I don't know. I'm finding contradictory things here on the internet. Um, You think it's Qatar. I think it's Qatar. I mean, the best person to answer this is the listener so we know he listens so please clear this up for us in the next podcast
2: okay uh having said that uh rocky played d3 football at lake forest college winning a share of the midwest conference title in his senior year in 2012 currently on the cutter national rugby team wow so he's a little like nate uh, ebner from uh, the patriots i'm a huge Wisconsin Badger fan. And now that the season's over, my favorite subject is, gra- is graduate transfers. Russell Wilson was amazing for us. And from recent podcasts, the two you named your Mount Rushmore of college football. It would be incredible to hear the same for graduate transfers or players who have transferred. On the same topic of transfers, a discussion about your top trench for the upcoming season predictions would be awesome to listen to. I'm hoping Malik Zaire from Notre Dame comes to Wisconsin. Maybe you can touch on predictions where some players who intend to transfer might end up.
1: So I wanted to include that because it was uh, such an exotic destination that we can't figure out how to pronounce. I don't know that I can in, can rattle off the top of my head a, uh, a Mount Rushmore of grad transfers, though certainly Russell Wilson would be right on it. Um, but the Malik Zaire one is interesting because this is kind of an unusual um, direction he's taking. So he announced, I believe, toward the end of the season or at the end of the season, regular season, that uh he's gonna transfer be a grad transfer and it was down to unc in wisconsin according to all the reports and then he just kind of stopped that process and he uh you would think you'd want to get to the new school in time for spring practice but he is i believe out training with his private coach in arizona and is going to wait till after spring practice to decide where he's going
2: Yeah, that creates a little more intrigue, and I think there's some situations where you're going to watch and see how the dominoes fall at some of these places.
1: So do you think he's literally just waiting to see, like he's going to wait and read the recaps of every spring practice and say, oh, this team needs a quarterback, this team needs a quarterback? I think there's going to be more intel than that, I do think. But I mean, is it Florida is the other school that's been mentioned? And the stories I read said that Florida, there's a rule in the SEC that their past grad transfers didn't meet academic requirements, so they can't take another one, but it might get waived. It was very complicated. Mm. But do you think, I mean, you know this this market, do you think that uh, he's waiting to see what specifically happens at his finalists
2: or he literally is like open to whoever might take him? Uh, I think he's playing it by year to be honest I mean I know the guy he works with pretty well um I haven't talked to him in a while
1: about it but I don't know about Russell Wilson but I think it's a it's a, it's a big impact transfer I mean this is a guy who he hasn't played that much but when he has he's done pretty well he's got a he's a good dual threat quarterback uh I would think he could come in start and be very successful yeah we'll see um the last one I wanted to bring up here you and I both recently participated in an exercise for Athlon where they asked us to rank the 50 best players of the past 50 years which I found to be incredibly difficult I bring that up as a context for this from Bill Thomas this is in reference to the Mount Rushmore thing there are a lot of good players who made their team better but only one transformative player who in the last 20 years carried his team to a national title in one division and then made them nationally ranked the very next year in a higher division Randy Moss is the best player I've ever seen in person Unless you actually watch the film, you don't understand how dominant a player he was in both 1AA and 1A. Question. Did you have Randy Moss in your 50 greatest players of the past 50 years? I'd
2: have to go through the email. I think I did have
1: him on, though. I, I did. I did. Um, and I don't. I hope we're not violating any rules here by disclosing this because I don't know when, when exactly this is coming out. Uh, yeah, as I went through it, I was like, you know what? you got to have him on there. He. I don't know that there was a more dominant receiver— during that period,
2: other than of course Jerry Rice. Yeah, looking back, it's hard to kind of um, go through this because some of these guys we never saw. That was a real challenge for me was feeling like I was putting in
1: disproportionate amount of guys in from the last twenty years and not enough from the sixties and seventies and even eighties. That's how I when I knew it was going to be really difficult. Right, they sent us this watch list in terms in order of positions, and when I started doing the quarterbacks. I started to realize, for instance, Danny Werfel. I'm like, oh yeah, he's going be very high. And then you get through the whole list of just the quarterbacks and you realize, wait a minute, I don't think he's even gonna make my list of quarterbacks that I want to include. And I don't think I'm gonna be able to include all the quarterbacks I want to in this list if I've gotta do every position. I only have three quarterbacks in my top 20. Here's a good example of how do you put guys in context from way before our era, Archie Manning. I think Archie Manning is universally recognized as you know, one of the great college quarterbacks of the last 50 years. But it was such a different sport. It was such a different era. There was no stats to go by. Um, he led Ole Miss to more success than they'd had before that, but it wasn't like they were national champions or, or you know, not the the Vince Young or, or Matt Leinart-type career. So how did how did you treat him?
2: I think I have him somewhere on here. I mean, for me, there was one that was a little more, Like, Hugh Green was a little before my time, but my older brother, I remember talking about him like he was Lawrence Taylor in college football. Uh, And Hugh Green made my top 40, I believe, at my top 40.
1: He was my second highest defensive player on the board.
2: Really? Yeah. Holy cow. I have three defensive guys in my top 10, um, but I saw them all. Now, one of the guys, you know, at first I was like, to me, he was the biggest omission that the College Football Hall of Fame has had in the last few years, and that was Derek Thomas. I had him in my number five guy. Doing this list, by the way, makes you realize just how
1: uh, elite Pitt was for a long period of time. I have four Pitt players in the top 50 players of the last 50 years. You wouldn't expect that given Pitt's profile today. Yeah, I mean, well, look, they had great graduate assistants in there just coaching them <laughs> up, so... And that doesn't even include a guy like Darrell Revis, who, uh, you know, goes on to become an NFL star. But I don't think you could argue is, you know, one of the fifty best college players. But, uh, you know, they they pumped out some great players there. And obviously, hey, I guess when the coach wins the national title and leaves the next year for Tennessee, that's probably a bad sign. You got to tell me who your number one guy was. Of the whole list. Yes. Um, that I bet was it's a, the same as mine. It was a tough, tough call between two running backs. Okay, and, we're on the same page right now. And I ended up going with Herschel Walker, number one, Barry Sanders, number two.
2: Wow, okay. Well, I went Herschel Walker, number one. I went Cam, number two, and I went Barry Sanders, number three. You and Cam, I mean,
1: my gosh, that one season merited him being the number two college player of the last 50
2: years. Yeah, he was frigging Superman, though. I, was <laughs> like, I mean, this isn't recency bias. This was just, I was around it. I just... And I'm not saying I'm like the biggest Cam Newton fan in the world, you know, or whatever. I just I was just awed by what he was able to do on the field. So I covered one of their regular season games that year it
1: was against LSU at Auburn. And I wonder if you remember this play. Cam breaks into the open field. Oh, yeah. and He he runs over
2: like the best athlete in college football at the end of the run.
1: And there was a phenomenal picture in SI the the next week that I printed out and put up on my wall in the office that was like. You know, it seemed like uh, you know this, that you made this up. Like you did, put, you staged a photo shoot where he's in the foreground and the two LSU defensive backs are lying on their stomachs, looking up at him.
2: Yeah, just just towards that end. Um, as great as as freaky and great as Leonard Fournette is, Tommy Moffett, who's the strength coach there at LSU and been there a long time, you know, just in context, you're like, is Leonard Fournette the greatest athlete you've, you've had since you've been there? And it's always like, he's awesome, this and that. And I was like, well, I had Patrick Peterson. And Patrick Peterson was like the, you know, just the, the barrier to everything like that. And to see what Cam Newton did to guys like that, it's just kind of, like I said, I was in awe by him. And this is a, when you go through this list, you just realize how many, how many iconic football players are on there. Yeah, it was really hard to
1: do. And it definitely, you definitely end up shortchanging defensive players. How high was your, how high did you have Spielman? Mm, he just missed the cut. Are you fucking kidding me? You didn't have me in your top fifty. <laughs> he was in there at one point, and then he got cut at the literally like I was 50, at fifty two, and I had to cut two names, and he was one of them. Oh my god, I'm like in my top fifteen. Don't you think that the order, other than the let's say the top ten or so, I think it gets pretty interchangeable. Like it does. anybody could it make does. an argument that that um, Ray Lewis should be. Eighth, he can be already twenty second, thirty six. Better in
2: the NFL than he was at Miami. So he's not in yours. No, he's like forty four on mine. I mean, part of me thinks my Dan Morgan was better at Miami than Ray Lewis was. Um, you know, they gave us a pretty extensive watch list, but I had two write ins,
1: and one of them is a guy who just finished his college career, and I'm wondering if you're going to respect this decision or mock it.
2: Oh, it's not Austin
1: Carr, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no it is not sorry it's not Austin Carr um it's Christian McCaffrey
2: no oh, he's the great three-year run a really great at least you know I mean two-year run certainly I mean
1: the fact that he broke such a distinguished record of Barry Sanders and then you know while he didn't get the acclaim the next year they got the that year before still finished with phenomenal status yeah he was a really good distance people appreciate that yeah I certainly think if Reggie Bush is on your list, and I assume he is, that McCaffrey might as well be there too, because I feel like they had similar careers. This has been a rather long episode, but it I guess, is. you know, when you well, are. Did Liner crack your top 30? Top, oh yeah, definitely. Did Brady? No, did he crack yours? It's been a long episode, Stu. We got to go on, so. I is Brady Quinn in your top 50 players? I can't reveal that at this point. You've revealed everything else, Reveal that. He is in my top
2: 50 drinking buddies, without a doubt. I will okay. tell you that.
1: Uh, Liner is the only one of our former... Well, let me just double-check that. I believe he's the only one of our Fox colleagues who made the cut. Although, Randy Moss was briefly one of our colleagues. Spielman's one of your colleagues, but you snubbed him. I did. I'm sorry about that, Spielman. Uh, well, you got a, you got a, an extra dose of us since you haven't heard from us for so long. As always, if you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play... Wherever you get podcasts, please tell some of your friends. We're going to be here for you all off-season. And send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.